The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. So we've been crunched up, closed off, wound up tight for over a year now. Work has been nearly impossible for many of us with kids crawling up and down the walls. And while this has been happening, we don't always think about our bodies. We can't always be in our bodies. We're just trying to get things done. We hear a lot now about self-care, even at work. But that term, it can just feel like another thing to do. And is it even effective? Well, I want you to know that if you're fried, anxious, always on edge, or just done, you are not alone. And there's a reason why you feel wound up and fried. It's your body trying to do the best it can with the information it has. So as we try to untie the knot, unravel, look ahead, and adjust to this next phase of life, we need to recognize there's a direct connection between our physical health our mental health, and our performance, especially at work. Here to help is our guest, Dr. Christine Runyon. She's a professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and she's co-founder of TEND Health. For her entire career, which includes a six-year stint as an active-duty psychologist in the U.S. Air Force, Dr. Runyon has been practicing teaching and training behavioral health providers and physicians in models of collaborative primary care. Dr. Runyon will help us understand a lot of the whys behind all those popular self-care techniques we're hearing so much about. She'll help us breathe and help us get where we want to be. I don't want to dwell too much in the past in this conversation, but I I want to acknowledge where we're all at. And you said... um, I've come to conceptualize a lot of what's happening in COVID as a disruption in our nervous system. The mind-body connection is actually quite sensitive to both what is real and what is imagined. So much of 2020 has been filled with uncertainty, and our brains do not like (laughs) uncertainty. (laughs) So my question for you is, beyond like, yeah, is... um, why is this uncertainty making our nervous systems crazy? Well, I, I, putting us in the present moment where our lives are filled with um, so much technology and so many predictive analytics and predictive tools, all of which are quite sophisticatedly designed to mitigate uncertainty and to help us with that planning. I think in some ways this pandemic really shined light on how much those efforts and a lot of um, what we have designed has outpaced our basic physiology and our basic biology. 
And so it really, I think, zoomed into um, acute focus and uncomfortable focus how underprepared our biological systems are. So I really think about us really falling to our knees in many ways around kind of having to square and come to terms with we are we are creatures, we are animals. And so much of what has played out, I think, um, relationally and intrapersonally has been because of um, almost a, an unwillingness, really, and a lack of acknowledgement of our basic physiology around um, trying to mitigate that uncertainty. And so when we're faced with any kind of uncertainty, small scale or large scale, real or imagined, our threat appraisal system is activated. And it's a beautiful adaptation. It's um, quite exquisite and we need it. We certainly need it for our survival and the propagation of our species, but it's activated also from any kind of uncertainty or any kind of invitation of of fear, which we can create within within ourselves, and that nervous so, so threat appraisal is one of our most basic. Just tell us, just quickly. I think probably most people can understand, but what it means. Yeah, I mean we're wired we're wired for fear, we're wired for survival, and so it's pretty primitive that our nervous system that is collecting um, m- millions of bits of information outside of our awareness through our senses. And so before we even have a conscious awareness that our system has appraised something as threatening, we are already activating that response. And it's preparing us to move towards with overcoming it through fight or to move away through flight if it feels in any way threatening to our safety or survival. Um, But that threat appraisal system is is really sensitive and it's going to fire and detect things even when it's not a real threat to us. Talk me through, I mean, one of the things that I've been hearing when I talk to people this this past year, and it's so real for me, um, is the experience of you're going about your work day and you have a break. So you sort of like check your phone or you check Twitter, you see the news headlines, something horrible has happened. Or, mm-hmm. you know, just recently the J&J vaccine, I was actually scheduled to get the J&J the day oh. that the FDA pulled it and said, mm-hmm. oh God, it could kill you. And one of my colleagues was like, I just got J&J two days ago. I'm a woman in this demographic. Oh my God. What is that? So talk us through using what you've just described in ter- terms of the threat appraisal, what that headline is doing to our threat appraisal system and our nervous system. Yeah. So, I mean, it's creating that physiological activation, which is highly predictable um, in you and in me and in your friend, which is going to increase our heart rate. It's going to increase our blood pressure. It's going to really put a pause on our digestive system, which is I think stress activation in this way is the root of a lot of the GI problems. Um, After, let me let me just tell you without oversharing, <laughs> I have literally spent the reason why I had to reschedule our was I had a colonoscopy. I've had every test in the book, and mm. the doctor said to me yesterday, like, I don't know, and I said, I think it's just anxiety. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, when when that system is firing, I think for many of us, it has has been too intensely. Um, too often and for too long over this past year because you get both the activation of it, which disrupts your uh, digestive system, and then you get the settling down. And so you have this, 
you know, it's sort of simultaneously for a lot of us, we have our foot on the gas pedal (laughs) to the floor and we have our foot on the brake and our system is, you know, (laughs) please just make up your mind. Um, So that threat appraisal system, you know, is, is activating all of that within us. And then we have this powerhouse of a brain that starts to sense this activation, right? It starts to sense something's going on and it tries to make sense of that. And sometimes, you know, the way it makes sense of that is actually to, it exacerbates the anxiety response. And so you get Mm -hmm. anxious about being anxious and then anxious about being anxious about, you know, it's the nesting dolls and it just can sort of go on in perpetuity um, without, uh, you know, if there's not a place of disruption at the, you know, at the peak, it can go into a panic attack that's the final sort of manifestation of that. But, uh, but our, our brains are trying to interpret these physiological signals once they come into our consciousness and our awareness. And sometimes um, if we are, if we are well-trained to know and interpret that as, oh, okay, yes, my, my nervous system has just assessed some kind of threat. Let me, ex- let me see what that may be. Let me appreciate that my body is trying to do me a favor <laughs> um, and keep me safe and keep me alive. And let me see if I can downregulate a little bit with some intentionality. And so we can't necessarily um, interrupt that automatic process because that threat detection system is really happening mostly outside of our conscious awareness through our senses. So the fact that it's going off is one, we can accept it and even appreciate it rather than denigrate ourselves for constantly sort of feeling those things internally and then be able to meet it um, in a way that's helpful. So sorry, I wanted to actually seize that moment because you said we could meet it and appreciate it. I mean, does that actually involve something like acknowledging like body you are trying to protect me and I exactly. get it, but exactly. not right now. Like, what would you say to yourself? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like ter- making that U-turn to sort of be like, oh, well, first I think it's what's here because sometimes our body is actually sensing something before our conscious mind can detect it. If you're driving mm-hmm. on the road um, and something comes into your peripheral vision and your senses are having you activate so that you can maneuver very quickly. And so sometimes we don't want to immediately downregulate because we may still need to leverage what our system is trying to do for us in that moment, which actually mm-hmm. does make us more acutely focused because it changes our um, our, our vision. It, it sort of things drop away from the perspective periphery so we can get very myopically focused on what we need to attend to. We leverage that glucose in our muscles so we can actually do things that we may not otherwise be able to do in terms of strength. So we may not want to downregulate it immediately until we assess that um, it's not needed. And then it's exactly, it's like, oh yeah, my body's actually working exactly as it's programmed to do. That's awesome. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. 
From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. A lot of our listeners, uh, this isn't their first rodeo, you know, that that maybe the pandemic has brought all of us to a sense of, oh my gosh, this is what living with anxiety feels like. But, you know, for me, for example, the, the heightened arousal has sort of been my life for all mm-hmm. my life. Mm-hmm. I have to ask you a question, like, does your body learn those pathways and does it become habitual to be constantly assessing or experiencing the threat appraisal and going into overdrive almost out of habit or comfort? Absolutely. We develop very deep habitual grooves and the neuroscience supports this. There's um, experience dependent neuroplasticity. So when we think about our brains as being constantly able to change, which we now know, and so we have this capacity for neuroplasticity, but it's ex- it's incredibly experientially dependent, and our brains are always trying to make light work for us. And so, you know, we'll always recognize patterns, and it will always default. We kind of default to our training in a lot of ways, and if your training has been <laughs> one of, right, high anxiety, one of whatever those automatic patterns are, um, it will try to spare you a lot of that, those mental gymnastics and decision-making by just dropping into the pattern that it knows, that it is very familiar with. Sometimes even, you know, often, even when that pattern is not going to serve you best in that moment, but your brain is and your system is really trying to do you a favor by conserving your metabolic energy and your capacity to focus on other things. So it will notice this familiarity um, and drop into that pattern. That's often why without some intentionality, behavior change is so difficult because you are any behavior you're trying to change in the moment is packaged with so much history and past of, of those habitual responses. So my husband will always say to me, you know, we'll, we'll have some big life event that I'm nervous about and, and I'm having all the classic responses mm-hmm. of anxiety and it'll end and he'll say, well, but you'll just find something else. The anxiety will just fill another <laughs> yes. vacuum. What is it? He's what not is the, wrong. Well, so, so, so what's happening? <laughs> That's the pattern because uh, worry and anxiety is actually um, a way that we can feel like we are doing something about the uncertainty. Mm. So because the future is always a theory and we don't particularly like um, as humans, right? I mean, again, if you just sort of look at what our um, efforts in the technological space are trying to do, they, you know, um, a large proportion of them are, are, are all about trying to mitigate uncertainty and to create better predictive models for, you know, blank insert thing here. And so they're, they in some ways are, we get messaging like we, we should be able to basically predict and plan everything. And so, yeah. but our, but our biological systems have not caught up to that. And so when we worry, when we, when we go into those anxious loops, it is a way of meeting that discomfort 
that our body is experiencing with uncertainty. So that whatever's happening beneath the skin, the brain says, oh, I know how to do this. I know what to do with this. I worry. I worry and I ruminate and I plan. And that actually takes you um, a little bit out of the physiological discomfort because you're giving your brain something to do. So worry is actually kind of this adaptation that that sometimes works, right? Every so often oh. we, <laughs> we do feel like, oh, well, I actually anticipated this potential outcome. This potential outcome happened. And now I have a way to meet that. Um, yeah. It's not often, but with that intermittent reinforcement, we, um, it's a very powerful reinforcement strategy. And so we do it again. Right. I mean, it, it's a powerful defense, you know, if I, and, and I think a lot of us have this defensive pessimism of like, if I just worry it out enough, it won't happen. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a real physiological cost to that. So if we, again, sort of go into the nervous system and go beneath the skin, worrying sustains our um, sympathetic nervous system. That's our, you know, fight, flight, sort of freeze, um, affiliate system. So, um, so sometimes worrying um, and worrying in pairs or in groups <laughs> can oh. have this um, effect where, right, it's that adage of a joy shared is doubled, a worry shared is halved. So mm-hmm. if you are worrying or um, it's why sometimes, you know, sort of talking something out, people can feel some catharsis and sharing it with somebody who is a deep and generous listener um, who's not even trying to necessarily solve the the problem or the constructed problem in our heads, that you are in in that way, you are actually activating a part of your affiliative nervous system response that wants to be in connection and community and feels some sense of um, release and calm in talking about those concerns. It's one of the sort of intangible, if you will, effects of therapy. And so we can do that just with um, with people in our family or with friends, as long as they're not feeding back to us something that just right gives us three more things to worry about right. or really begins to a- continue to activate the anxiety response that's in us. So so worrying if you if you are if you feel like worrying is just going to be who you are and what you do, worry in pairs or groups, <laughs> um, don't worry alone. It's like going through that, you know, don't go to the dark alley at night alone. <laughs> go with a friend. Okay, so talk me through this. So when I'm worrying, I'm in a high state of arousal, my flight or fight, and you mentioned freeze um, is super activated. What's happening? And then why does my friend who listens and hugs me take down that arousal? Yeah. So when you're, when you're worrying again, this is at the beginning, sort of the idea that our nervous systems can't really, um, you know, much differentiate between real and imagined and why we can basically work ourselves up so much is because our nervous system is just believing that there is something we need to respond to. And it's preparing us for that fight or flight. That's that sympathetic nervous system, um, activity. And that's part of our autonomic nervous system, which is, um, automatic and it has two branches one is the sympathetic and one is the parasympathetic sympathetic is sort of fight flight um, fight flight freeze really and then our parasympathetic is um, our rest and digest system it's the system that we can activate that helps to um, dial down the sympathetic they both can't be on at the same time effectively so if you can activate your parasympathetic nervous system 
you can quiet the sympathetic nervous system. And that's generally much more effective than just telling yourself, calm down, calm down, calm down, stop worrying, stop worrying. Um, (laughs) Because that keeps us in an aroused state as opposed to doing some things that activate the parasympathetic um, or our affiliative response. And that's why talking with somebody, getting some support, you mentioned a hug. Um, A hug is just a beautiful way for our, our creaturely self to intercept safety and that kind of physiological touch that's nurturing and calming activates that rest and digest system. It kicks mm. off the parasympathetic nervous system and it's a different set of neurotransmitters and chemicals that get released and our system will respond correspondingly. Our heart rate will go down, our blood pressure will go down. That's actually why we, you know, we feel calmer because we actually are calmer in our systems. You, I think I've, I've heard you talk about the power of a long exhale. Yeah. My own amazing psychiatrist um, has been sort of helping me calm by, by, by doing things like a long exhale. Yeah. Why? Yeah. So our inhale activates our sympathetic nervous system. And our exhale activates that parasympathetic nervous system. And so really focusing on an exhale and long exhale is doing just what I said, is activating the parasympathetic nervous system that begins to turn that light switch. You know, it, it takes, it's, it turns that light, that dimmer switch down. And I don't want your listeners to do, <laughs> to do this, but we can, you can do this own kind of like biofeedback exercise by if you were to do a breathing where you you double the length of your inhale compared to your exhale, you would very quickly notice this activation of your sympathetic nervous system. Well, you but would, that's why you do to wake up, right? Or if well, you're yeah, yeah. doing certain kinds of yoga, right? It's, you might exactly. do this. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And that's, that is just... Right. It's activating that system that's like, okay, get up, let's go, let's go, fire it up. And so this is really an invitation for the opposite, which is um, at its simplest level of just doubling the length of the, the exhale compared to the inhale. So can, can we do it real quick? Yeah. Can you talk us yeah. through it? So um, we could do it with um, like maybe a two to four count. Okay. So. We'll do an inhale to the two count and an exhale to the four count. Now, if you if you if you can do it through the nose, um, if your nose is not congested, that is ideal. And some of your listeners, or you may you mentioned yoga, have some experience with yogic breathing, where on the even on the exhale, if you do like a very slight constriction in the back of your throat, almost so it's your exhale it almost be audible sort of it's called an ocean sounding breath or the ujjayi breath um, ujjayi right? breath yeah, yeah yeah and so that can actually facilitate kind of lengthening the exhale but um mm. and and i'd love to add one more component to this as Please. well if I, if I could <laughs> Please. um just so your listeners can get sort of like the you know the sort of trifecta the big bang for the buck here if you're going to do this exercise and that is to add in the belly breathing or abdominal breathing. So belly breathing, often when our sympathetic nervous system is activated, our breathing becomes quite rapid, shallow, and very focused in our chest. 
And even sometimes when people say, oh, take a couple of deep breaths, um, you can think back to, you know, sort of when we were little and going to the doctor and they put mm-hmm. the stethoscope on our, back to, on our back and say, take a deep breath. You almost see everybody's chest goes, right? It's all chest space and you bring in all this air into your chest. And so belly breathing is really leveraging our diaphragm, which if you even just place a hand sort of at the base of your rib cage, um, just over your uh, around, you know, your belly button and you take a breath in trying to expand that part of your belly. So keeping your chest pretty neutral and expanding that part of your belly on the inhale. So let's just try that even just normal kind of inhale, exhaling. So we'll just try and take a breath in and expand the belly and exhale, allowing the belly to drop towards the spine. Inhaling, expand the belly. And just like a balloon would lose air, exhaling, allow the belly to deflate. Were you able to feel some air in your belly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of, if if you're going to, if you're going to do one thing, I'm going to, and I can walk us through now just a, an inhale, exhale. So in, in through the nose, fill the belly. Long exhale. Inhale, filling the belly. Exhale, long and slow. One more, inhale through the belly. Exhale, long and slow. And how does that feel now in your body? Well, I feel I feel much calmer. But you know, something else I just noticed is um, my shoulders dropped, and I'm I, I'm a I'm a my shoulders are usually up by my ears, which creates tremendous stress and headaches and things and the act of that really like physically dropped my shoulders. It's almost saying I can calm down. I can. Yeah. I I think that a lot of what many of us have been experiencing recently, and you'll see a backlash in the business news about it too, Mm. is that companies are very into self-care right now. Mm -hmm. And and we're all about self-care. Like, oh, there's a wellness app or there's and I think a lot of people feel and rightfully so this is really hollow yes one of the things I found powerful about your work is that you explain why a lot of the things that sound hollow work Mm -hmm. Um, for example you know I trained myself a couple years ago when I was writing a book to light a scent Mm -hmm. a, a scented candle in my office and like that would train my brain that it was time to think and focus. Why was I smart in doing that? Yeah. So for several reasons, <laughs> one, uh, one um, scent, you know, anything that comes into our olfactory senses, like I said, our, our threat appraisal system is happening at this level of the nervous system. You know, the brain is a, is an add on and often an unhelpful one for that. For that. Right. And so um, smell is, is goes right to our limbic system and activates, you know, where our memories are stored in our hippocampus and says, oh, 
you know, it can bring you, you know, a, a smell can bring you back to a moment in time. And it can, when you have a smell that is pleasing and pleasant, um, it can, again, like activate that parasympathetic nervous system that um, associates that with relaxation. The the reason you are saying like you, you began to associate, oh, now it's time to write with the smell is it's pairing those things. And like I said, our brain's always trying to make light work for us. So it is always drawing patterns, creating patterns and associations. And it's that experience dependent neuroplasticity is that experience dependent learning. Oh, smell means getting into this space and this particular smell and doing this particular work. It's why the the recommendation around sleep hygiene to not, you know, watch TV in bed, for example, because your brain starts to pair over repeated experiences, being in bed and watching TV does not mean sleep. It means engaging in whatever you're going to watch in. And so if you can remove those things and go to bed without those things, your brain will start to pair bed with sleep. So we can leverage our tendency to create these associations, again, which is outside of our conscious awareness. We can leverage them in in positive ways. I mean, that's the power of habit, the power of ritual. It's really just removing any points of having to make decisions and trying to create these automatic pathways. I'm curious how you are. You have a company called Tend, T-E-N-D, Health. Tend Health. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a very caring word, tending for someone. (laughs) Exactly. My last question is then, Hopefully, I think we all hope that the next six months will be better than the last six months, but there's still so much uncertainty. Bringing this full circle, how are you helping the people that the professionals that you work with prepare for the uncertainty? And what can you tell our audience about taking care of ourselves as we deal with the next probably very messy (laughs) period? One um, messaging for um, patients and uh, caregivers that I work with, they have not, uh, most of them have not been in a period of remote work from home. They've right. been actually juggling sort of, you know, parenting and school from home <laughs> um, while they have to go in and do their jobs. But the the messaging um, that I share with them, um, also to share with their patients and just in general is is really one of slow and steady. And again, this comes back to understanding ourselves as limitlessly adaptive creatures, but needing time and space to do that adaptation and to not expect that we're going to be able to show up at a music festival in June and not have our system say, what the heck are you doing? (laughs) And to respond, right? So slow and steady. So not to, um, we don't want to, keep drawing our perimeter so close in that we don't challenge ourselves because that actually will make any of the anxiety that one has about re-entry worse. So we want to approach, even if there is a little bit of anxiety, but do it slowly so that incrementally your system has time to adjust and adopt. And I think, um, you know, hoping to get this message out into the business world too, is that just saying like, you know, you can't, it's not going to work to just say like, okay, everybody return to work full time, Monday through Friday in person, starting, you know, two Mondays from now, like that's not a slow and steady (laughs) re-entry plan. So do it. 
um, you know, approach, but do it, um, but do it slowly. So you give your system time to adjust and to not be surprised if the first time you're in a larger gathering, your sympathetic nervous system goes off. Your threat yeah. appraises, wait, what are you doing? I thought all these people were a source of, you know, potential infection and threat. They're going to kill so me, right? They're gonna exactly. Kill- <laughs> yeah. So your system's going to need some, some time to adjust. And then the other piece of advice I have is just is compassion, compassion mm-hmm. for others, compassion for self. And I often carry around in my own head this quick um, quote or poem by um, Miller Williams. And he says, um, have compassion for everyone you meet, even if they don't want it. What seems <laughs> conceit, bad manners or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard, no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars are going on down there where the spirit meets the bone. And I just carry that. I carry that with me because it's such a reminder to separate the behaviors from the people. I interact, you know, see people all the time and and I don't know what wars are going on down there. I know that they're trying to keep themselves safe and they want people they love to be safe and they're doing the best they can with the constraints that they have internal and external and if I can hold that for them I can hold it for myself that's it for today's special episode thanks to my producer Mary Dew and the HBR team if you like our music it's by Signal Sounds NYC and if you have an idea or you want to ask me a question, tweet me at Mora AM, or you can send me a message on LinkedIn. From HBR Presents, this is The Anxious Achiever, and I'm Mora Aarons-Mealy. <laughs>